All right. So we will just jump in here. So the topic is about godly families, what they look like, how they function. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about what many people would refer to as gender roles and what that means from a biblical point of view. And we're going to touch on uh, man, woman, and child, meaning so what's the role of a husband, uh, a wife, and then the children. And there's, there is application to this uh, for, for single people too. So if there's any questions about specifics within that, you guys just feel free to ask and we'll touch on those things. But if anything, this is really helpful to know even if you are single because if you're talking to anybody you know that is married or is going to be, this is really helpful information to share, especially if it's a couple or a relationship that you're not sure if it's very solid. This is really practical and really important to understand for uh, for anyone and, and understanding how God wants to set up families. So that's the topic. You can turn to Ephesians 5, and I'll just start by going over some definitions I have written here, and then we will go from there. So Ephesians 5.23 is where we're going to start. So first thing we're going to talk about is the role of the husband. And this comes from Ephesians 5.23, where it says, For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. The term head is not something that's just unique to the New Testament. It's mentioned all over the Old Testament as well. Headship, or being a head, as the Hebrew word defines it, means to be captain or chief. So it's just a leadership word, is all that headship is, simply put. And the point is that God created men to be the leaders of their families. Ephesians 5.23 makes that clear in saying that a husband is head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church and savior of the body. So now this is a, uh, this next bullet point is kind of a common argument, or I should say counter argument that's brought up by people who will ask like, okay, well, let's say you have a, a man or a dad or a husband that's not present or is not being the kind of man that he should be, then is it okay that the woman kind of take the reins and decide to be the leader um, because the husband doesn't seem to be doing very much? And so then the question, of course, is, you know, can the wife be the leader? And the point is that the, a wife should not be the leader because the leader must be male. And we're going to look at scriptures for why the Bible says that. Um, and the first point underneath that is comes from Genesis. So we'll go to Genesis 2. The first point is the reason why the leader must be male in a family unit is because women were made to be helpers to their husbands, not to lead their husbands. This comes from Genesis 2, so we'll go there. Genesis 2 in verse 18 says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. So again, it says that man existed alone first and that God created Eve to be a helper comparable to him. So again, the point, women were made to be helpers to their husbands, not to lead their husbands. The next bullet point is that men are commanded and expected to be rulers in their home. You can find this in Genesis 3. So just one page over, one chapter over. Genesis 3, of course, this is where God is stating the curses 
after the fall. Hey guys. So Genesis 3 and verse 16, it says, To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Before we go to the next scripture in Numbers, I want to make a couple points about this, because this scripture is commonly misunderstood. Typically, when you read through Genesis 3 and you're reading the, the curses, if you will, typically the average Christian will read through those and think, everything that God says there is negative, or that somehow everything he's saying is the curse. Good morning. But not everything that God says in here is part of the curse. So to give you an example, if you look at verse 14, where he speaks to the serpent, he states the curse first, which is that, you know, because you have done this, you're a curse more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field on your belly, you shall go and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. So that's the curse. The serpent is now going to crawl on his belly, and there's going to be an enmity between him and the woman. Then he states the solution. This is the redemptive promise. I like to call it the shall statement, which is, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So that's the promise that, hey, there's coming a day when the serpent's going to be defeated, and that his head will be crushed. Then you turn to the woman. Here's the curse. I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. Stop there. That's part of this, this cause of sin. The final statement is a solution. It's not part of the problem. And he says, after your desire shall be for your husband, <clears throat> and he shall rule over you. <clears throat> so ruling in scripture on the part of the man is not considered a negative thing because of course it is echoed throughout the new testament that a husband's designed and created to be a head uh, over his wife for her own good so when god says he shall rule over you that's not god's way of saying the effect of the curse is that the husband's going to be uh you know apt to dominate you right that's that's not a problem statement he's making he's saying that the solution to the curse on female is husband being a ruler in the household that's a solution which is a blessing it's a blessing right exactly and then you go to the next verse where he talks about the curse upon the ground which starts in 17 he says cursed is the ground for your sake and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the herb of the field so the curse is thorns and thistles are going to come out of the ground then he says, here's the solution. In other words, here's how you resist the growth of these thorns and thistles. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. So, again, solution to the serpent's curse is one day this Messiah is going to come and defeat the serpent. The solution to the curse on the woman is that a husband is going to be a leader. The solution to the curse on the ground is that man will have to work really hard in sweat and blood to keep thorns and weeds from growing in the earth. And work is also a blessing. Exactly. Right. So it, we'll, we'll get into this more later, but basically part of the solution for women is to have oversight in their lives and in their household through the leadership of a husband. And part of the solution to men and the sin in their life is to be workers and to labor all the days of their life. So basically it's saying, you know, women... 
a woman needs oversight, specifically from a husband, it says. Um, of course, this would be a married woman. And then for a man, he needs to work. These are solutions to the problem. They're not part of the problem, right? So this is really important for the rest of what we're getting into. Um, so that's, again, back to Genesis 3.16, he shall rule over you is uh, about men or husbands are the ones who are to be the leaders. So now we can turn to Numbers 5.29. Numbers 5, 29. So there's a little bit of context here I'm not going to get into in too much detail. But I will touch on it a little bit. I'll start by just reading the verse as is. Numbers 5, 29 says, This is the law of jealousy when a wife, while, while under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself. So pause there. This is a verse in addition to Genesis that says a married woman is under her husband's authority. Different translations say a little bit say it a little bit differently, but this is another scripture that supports, hey, the man is supposed to be the leader. He's the one who's supposed to exercise authority in the home. Um, there's a common verse in 1 Corinthians 14 where Paul says, um, I'm not going to talk about the context, but Paul, Paul talks about how it's important for a woman, he says, to keep or maintain quietness in the church. And then he says in the next statement that for she is to be under submission as the law also says. And so a lot of believers will say like, well, where, where in the law or the Old Testament does it say that a woman's supposed to be submitted to her husband? And they'll say, so it must not be about the Bible. It must be about the law of the land at the time because they can't find it in the Bible. But Genesis 3.16 and Numbers 5.29 are two of actually three portions in the Old Testament that say the husband is supposed to be the one in authority and then a wife is to be submitted to him. So if you ever are in that conversation or you're reading 1 Corinthians 14 and you read that part where it says that the wife is to be under submission as the law also says, Paul is referring to these scriptures. That's where, that's where he's getting that teaching. So keep that in mind. So the rest of the bullet point, I wrote that men who lead their wives are actually guarding their wives from sin. Women are kept safe through being homemakers submitted to their husbands. And that, again, goes back to Genesis 3.16. The problem was that there'd be an effective sin in the life of Eve and, of course, all women after that. God says the solution is for a husband to be a ruler in the home. That's part of protecting Eve and, therefore, women from sin. And then, of course, you have 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 15. We'll turn there quick. First Timothy two twelve through fifteen. So Paul says there, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For and this is where he talks about uh, the Garden of Eden again. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she, this is the woman or the wife, will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So the question comes from verse 15, which is what is she or the woman 
or the wife being saved from? That's the question, right? Because, of course, he's not talking about salvation in general, as in, like, being saved from hell, because, of course, Jesus is the Savior for man and woman from eternal damnation. The kind of salvation he's talking about here is deception. If you go back to Genesis, God appointed Adam to be the ruler, protector, and cultivator of his family. The serpent goes to Eve and deceives her, and what does Adam do? He just lets it happen. So he's failing to lead and rule in that case. And that's one of the reasons why Eve was deceived by the serpent. So Paul is stating here, if you want to help protect women from being deceived, the same way that Eve was, man, uh, her husband being present and being a ruler and leader in their home is part of that solution. And he also includes childbearing in there and says she'll be saved in childbearing, which is basically Paul's way of saying if you have a married woman who focuses on bearing children and managing the home, that's if she's seated in that role and is submitted to her husband, that'll be the greatest means of protecting her from sin and deception. That's Paul's point, right? Um, so all those points were written there to state that a leader in a home has to be male, has to be a man, because God has always appointed husband as ruler. And so if you have a woman being a ruler, then that not only violates God's commandments, but it also removes both men and women from the position that keeps them protected from sin. You step out of that position, then you're now more vulnerable the same way that Eve became vulnerable. Because Adam failed to lead and Eve failed to be submitted to him. Right. Uh, any questions about anything so far? Hmm? Okay. All right. So now we're going to look some more in Genesis. You can turn to uh, Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 15. We'll just start by reading the scripture. Genesis 2, starting in verse 15, we'll read through 17. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. That's what, what we're looking at. We're going to start by defining what tend and keep means. Keep in mind that Eve doesn't exist yet. She hasn't been created yet. So it's just Adam at this point that's been created. So before Eve exists, God takes Adam, puts him in the garden to tend and keep it, and then gives him the command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then Eve is created, and now she's sort of inserted into this task that Adam has been given. But the task in general was given to man first. And the first command is tend and keep. Defining those words. The next bullet point there I write cultivation and protection. To tend, that word in Hebrew means to cultivate. And to keep in Hebrew means to protect. Thank you, Ada. Let's not touch those, please. Again, so 
the word tend means to, means to cultivate, and the word keep means to protect or guard. So God tells Adam, this is again the man, God tells the man, your job for this, we'll call it household, that's given to you, is to cultivate it and to protect it. So the Garden of Eden, the equivalent of that in today's day and age, is whatever your household is, your sphere of influence. That also includes your finances, your physical living space, your property, your children, uh, your spouse, all of that is your garden, right? That's where you where you are responsible. And the husband is given the task to cultivate and protect. If you define cultivation, as I read here, it's both natural and spiritual. So natural cultivation would be things like working to provide finances, maintaining the health of a household by providing money that's used to buy groceries and clothing and of course a home that's part of cultivation you're maintaining the health and well-being of a household by working again remember god told adam in genesis 3 your job is to till the ground in the sweat of your face so it is very biblical for men to be the ones that are doing the working to provide the largest portion of the finances for the home because they're the ones who are told part of the solution to the curse is to work and to sweat and to be occupied in that kind of work for the purpose of cultivating. Keeping or protection can also be natural in the sense that having money also provides security for a home, it provides safety for children. And then you even have things as simple as like, hey, if your house gets broken into or your family is getting attacked, physically defending your family is also a part of protecting, physically speaking. Then the spiritual side of things, this is where a lot of us miss it, is that cultivating and protecting spiritually is about providing a family with guidance and instruction in the word. That's spiritual direction. Um, and that's that, that second sub-bullet point underneath there where I write spiritual, working to provide guidance and discipline in the word. This brings protection from sin and spiritual or demonic deception. Naturally providing is pretty straightforward. It just means work, make money, provide. Spiritual cultivation and protection is about guiding and disciplining in the word. That's also a husband's responsibility. That that tending and keeping, again, is given to the man. That's given to the husband. So, of course, if the husband's to be the ruler in the home, then that means he's supposed to lead the way in doing both of those things. And then, of course, that last bullet point underneath that section, I write that men are best protected from sin when they are busy with hard work. And that comes from Genesis 3, 17 through 19, which we read already, where him working in the sweat of his face is the point. Um, again, men are best protected from sin when they are busy with hard work. A great example of this you can read about additionally in the Old Testament. I don't have it written in the, written in the outline, but is in 1 Samuel uh, chapters uh, 12, specifically chapter 12 of 1 Samuel, which talks about Uriah. So if, I don't know how familiar you guys are with the story of uh, Uriah, but it, it immediately succeeds the story of David and Bathsheba, right? So David commits adultery, another man's wife, that man is Uriah. And the contrast between David and Uriah is that David stayed home when the rest of the army was at battle. And it says he rose from his bed in the evening. So it literally means he was in bed all day, did absolutely nothing. And that's right when he slips into adultery, 
right? So he leaves his work. What happens? Sin. Well, God said that was going to happen from the beginning in Genesis. You keep men occupied with work. It's very healthy for them. Uriah was so focused on being with the army at the battle that when David pulled him off the battlefield to come home to try to get him to sleep with his wife so he could hide the pregnancy, he wouldn't even do it because he said, I'm not supposed to be home right now, not even with my wife. I'm supposed to be at battle. Like, why am I home right now? Like, I'm not supposed to be here, you know? So you've got two different men. One is in sin. The other is in righteousness. And the difference between the two is that one was working and the other wasn't, right? This doesn't mean the only solution to sin is work. Of course, that can also be kind of a cop-out in a lot of ways. But work is a big part of it, especially for men, right? You're not going to see a healthy, righteous man who uh, doesn't work. He will have some, always is supposed to have some kind of work to keep him occupied. So again, resetting the point, men are best protected from sin when they are busy with hard work. Following points, back to Ephesians 5. Men lead their families by setting an example of selfless devotion to serve their families and obey the word of God. When a husband leads from selflessness, he is a godly head. So if you go back to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, 25. Starting there, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So pause there. Husband is ahead. The first command given to him is to sacrifice himself. So just as Jesus laid down his life for the church, he says a husband is to lay down his life for his family, for his wife, to serve them. If you have a leader or a head in a home and all that leader does is dominate selfishly, then of course it would be dysfunctional. But if you have a leader who every decision that is made is out of selflessness and devotion to serve his family, then every obedient submission to his decisions will be healthy and in the best interest of the family because that leader is selfless, right? So that's why when God is speaking to people who are leaders, and in this case, husbands, he's saying, hey, leaders, first thing you got to focus on is being selfless because that's the only way you're going to fend off the pride uh, and uh, tyranny, if you will, that comes from a lack of selflessness. <clears throat> so, of course, men lead by setting an example of selfless devotion to serve. Last bullet point in that section is that men lead their families well by taking charge in bringing instruction and discipline to their children. This comes from Ephesians also, chapter 6 in verse 4. <clears throat> he says, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Training means instruction, nurturing. And admonition means warning, discipline, and rebuke. So, and again, remember, he places this task on fathers. So again, this would be the male counterpart in a family. He says they're the ones that are supposed to lead in training and disciplining their children. So again, to restate the point, men lead their families well also by taking charge in bringing instruction and discipline to their children. It should not fall on the wife 
to be in charge of uh, deciding entirely how the children are going to be disciplined. That's some, something that's supposed to fall first on dad. And that, of course, is supported here in, in Ephesians. So if you sum up that entire section about uh, the role of a husband, the main point is that the husband is meant to be the leader in the home. That leader needs to be a man. He's supposed to work to provide and protect his family, both physically and spiritually. He's to be an example of selfless devotion and lead by taking charge in disciplining the children. That sums up what uh, the role of a husband is in a home. Uh, one su additional supporting scripture that I have at the top, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. We didn't read that, but I want to just read that real quick just so you guys have another, another verse to support that. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. He says, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Another statement about headship. The head of woman is man. And of course, that will be seen first and foremost in a marriage, in a household, where the head of a wife and of course of a family will be, will be the man. Okay. Any questions or comments about any of that? Otherwise, we'll turn to the next section. Okay. Now we're going to talk about the role of the wife or the helper. So let's look at uh, back in Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis a lot. Genesis 2, 18 again. So just to read that again, as we have. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Woman is described as a helper in this case. Next bullet point. The Hebrew word helper means aid and supporter. Additional points to support that. Adam was given tasks from God. That's Genesis 2.15, right? He was given the command, tend and keep. Adam was given tasks from God, and Eve was made to help Adam accomplish these tasks, or what was given to him by God. So man was given leadership to perform the tasks. Eve was created to help support him in accomplishing those tasks. So of course that would imply that ultimate decision-making and guidance of a household is supposed to come from the man and the woman supports in those decisions. Uh, next bullet point. Women help. This is now we're getting into how, how women actually accomplish this helpership. Women help their husbands through taking on management of the home and of their children while the husband works. So if you look at uh, 1 Timothy 5, 14 is where we'll turn next. First Timothy five fourteen. 
1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 14, Paul says, Therefore I desire that the younger marry, he's talking about women and widows, <clears throat> marry, bear children, manage the home, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. For some have already turned aside after Satan. In context, when he's talking about give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully, he's saying the devil, or specifically unbelievers, should not have to see the household of Christian people in disarray. If it is, that gives the devil something to use against the gospel. Of course, to put a stain on the message of Christ. Because if unbelievers are walking around and they see chaotic homes that belong to believers, they have a reason to disregard the gospel because the home is in disarray, right? So he's saying one of the reasons why it's so important for women to marry and focus on uh, bearing children, of course, raising those children and managing the home environment is because that keeps helps keep the home environment in order so that unbelievers don't have that as something to use against the church or to use against the gospel. That's why that's so important. Then if you turn to uh, Titus chapter 2, this is going to be a couple books later. Titus chapter 2 in verse 4 says that they admonish the young women to love their husbands to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands. Again, here's the point. So that the word of God may not be blasphemed. What does the chaste? Chaste, bas chaste basically means it's it's a word that has to do with what many people would call modesty. It's saying basically be be faithful to your husband. Extreme means like don't cheat on your husband. Second means when you're in public, don't like dress like you're trying to get a bunch of other men you know you know live and dress and conduct yourself in a way that shows loyalty exclusively to your husband that's what chaste chaste means uh in short so again the, the point is that the word of god may not be blasphemed that's the same point as first timothy 5 it's important that women do this because otherwise it blasphemes the gospel Unbelievers get a chance to speak something negative about what we believe if we're not good at managing our homes. And he gives, the task is given to a wife to focus on her husband, her children, and the home environment. That's a, it's a godly thing for women to focus on that. So now here's a practical example in the next bullet point I have written here. You see this very commonly these days, especially both mom and dad working outside the home and leaving the children in daycare or with a babysitter or alone is unhealthy for children. Parents will have the greatest opportunity with their children to raise them in the way of the Lord if dad works outside the home most and mom stays at home most. I hear this a lot, especially there's a, you know, some coworkers of mine at the warehouse that I work at, but one uh, coworker in particular that I've had a few conversations with just at work um, talks about how uh, you know every day he goes to work and when he gets off work he picks up his his kid from daycare because um, and he's not even married yet but it's the girlfriend she also works as another family that I know both of them work and they put the kid in daycare and they pick him up at the end of the day 
and you have however many hours that is, which most of the time is eight hours at work. So you have eight hours where a child is not actually brought up in any training or admonition of the Lord, but is simply kept alive and really spoiled until they come home at the end of the day. So what is that child being raised in? Well, it's not the training and admonition of the Lord, you know. Um, and so, of course, that would be unhealthy for children. God setting up a household in such a way that the man focuses on working in the sweat of his face to provide and also protect. And then a woman focusing on loving your children and managing the home gives that couple the most possible time with their children to train them and raise them in a way that's godly. And that's one of the reasons, spiritually speaking, why it's so important for uh, dad to work and mom to focus most on the home. You are kicking so many worldly ways of yeah. That yeah. They are. Mm -hmm. yeah. Super common these days. Yeah, it was ultimately it was biblical family values. It really was. Yeah. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Very biblical for things to be what most people would call a traditional family unit or the nuclear family. That's that's biblical. It's not even traditional. It's just biblical. So, yeah, good stuff. A point underneath that is remember, from what we talked about earlier, that men were created to work in the field and women were created to care for children and support their husbands. Genesis 2 and 3 has always taught that. That being the case, of course, it makes the most sense that dad would work outside the home and that mom would stay focused on staying at home with the children. Okay, so next bullet point. Here's another way that women can be helpers. So women help their husbands by taking up tasks for the physical gain of the family that the husband cannot handle himself. So you can read about this in Proverbs 31. Because a common misconception that comes up with this is, okay, well, then does that mean a woman can't do anything to help provide financially for the family or to do any kind of work? But that is also not biblical because Proverbs 31 actually talks about uh, women having some responsibility to help provide for the household financially. It just simply looks different than it does uh, with a husband. So Proverbs 31, verses 13 through 17, talking about the, the virtuous wife, says she seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. She considers a field and buys it, and from her profits she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. What I wrote next on this bullet point is that a husband will most often delegate these tasks to his wife. 
So practically what this looks like is basically you will have a husband uh, doing most of the work for the financial gain, but then while the wife is at home, one thing that she can do to help both occupy her time and bring more gain to the household is to find a way thank you is to find a way to bring gain to the household through as it's written here buying a field and from the prophets planting a vineyard it also says seeking wool and flax and works with her hands so there's two things she's doing here the first is she finds a way to develop a talent or a skill to sell things that she can use to provide more money for the household. A second thing is it says is that she develops a skill of being aware of uh, finances to a degree that she can consider something to purchase, make it better, and then resell it. Or if it's an actual field where she's planting things, she can actually plant a vineyard and then sell grapes, right? So this is basically a way of talking about a wife who's at home, but she's finding a way to develop skills that she can use for bringing more gain to the family but of course she's still at home this is her her focus and it's all regarding the household she's just developing skills right so this is it's a very healthy thing for women to do um, especially when kids get a little bit older you know you're not necessarily dependent or you don't have like newborns that are de dependent on you bodily all the time which takes up a lot of time mm -hmm. kids are older they're more free to move and walk around and be more independent you can include children in these tasks for the household you can help them develop skills you can help that help them learn talents that they can use to make money for the household you know or even for their own future and so all he's talking about is a wife who finds a way to make money while she's at home right and so that's that's the point of that that scripture and when i write that a husband will most often delegate these tasks to his wife uh, the reason why i write that is because if the husband's the leader in cultivating that home and maintaining its health and well-being then he could say hey like here's our financial goal we should be making this amount of money this is what we need for a household here's how much i can work here's how much money i will make when i'm at my job here's the remainder we have to make let's find a way for you to make more money while you're at home and then they can talk about what she can do and so there's tasks that are being delegated to her right um, and so that's what it might look like in terms of the communication next bullet point is that women can help their husbands by being a servant uh, submitting to their leadership, instructions, and desires. Uh, submission is help. If you, uh, you know, show up at, um, to to help anyone, like let's you just you you go somewhere to offer your help for. Let's say you're like I did this for a friend. He was moving from one place into another, uh, from one apartment into another. I showed up to submit to his request for what he wants moved and how that that's me being a helper if i showed up and said after he asked me to move a certain thing no i'm not going to do that i want to do things my way i'm not a helper anymore i would be trying to take charge i'd be trying to lead but that's not what i showed up for i showed up to help him which of course means that the greatest help that i will be is by being submitted to his guidance for how he wants his stuff moved into his new place right so submission and helpership go hand in hand you can't actually have helpership without submission because the what is the greatest help to a godly and leading husband is being submitted to him and so you can't have again you can't have one without the other a really great example of this is in first samuel 25 uh, with a woman called abigail um, she 
hardly knows David at this point. David is the, the man that she marries. And they don't have much of a relationship yet at this point. And what happens is Abigail's former husband, Nabal, dies. And so now she's a widow. And David knows that um, she'll have to remarry. So he proposes to her. This is in verse 39 is where it starts. Um, yeah, verse 39 of 1 Samuel 25, it says, So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. And David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. Verse 40, When the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her, saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. This is her first statement, verse 41. First thing she says, so it says, She arose, bowed her face to the earth, and said, Here is your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So, first thing she says when she realizes that she's going to be married to this guy is, I'm a servant. I'm here to help. That's what she's saying, right? So, Abigail obviously understands what it means to be a helper, because that's the first thing she acknowledges when she's going to be married to David, is... I'm here to be a servant. And she says, not only a servant to David himself, but a servant, she says, to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So she not only calls her new husband her Lord, she also says that she's going to be a servant to his companions as well. So she's saying, I'm, I'm here to help you and everyone around you. Every employer's dream employee's attitude. Yep, exactly. <laughs> yep. And those employees are helpers. Like, they understand that. And Abigail obviously understands that. And so she's a great example in terms of the attitude she has about being married. She approaches this marriage not with something she's going to get out of it, what she's going to gain. She approaches this marriage with only an attitude of, I'm here to be a servant. And that's it. And so that's a very healthy, godly attitude that a woman can have in a marriage. And then, of course, you have Ephesians 5.22 that says that wives are be to to be submitted to their husbands as to the Lord, which means be submitted to the husband in the same way that you're submitted to Christ himself. And then you have Ephesians 5.24 saying, therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. It says, be submitted, be a servant. That is being a helper to your husband. Then a sub bullet point I placed underneath there is that a wife should also encourage her husband, speak and do good for him, and ultimately help to keep him focused on the Lord. That's the, really the most important point because if a woman goes into a marriage thinking she's going to control things and that being married is about her own personal gain, then she would be pulling the husband away from Christ to herself. And that's not being a helper. Um, so if she is helping him stay focused on God and ultimately be submitted to God, then she would be the greatest help to him that she could possibly be. Uh, a way of looking at this that I think is just kind of a cool hidden gem in Genesis is that even in their biological creation, uh, man is made out of dirt and woman is made out of flesh or made out of Adam's body. And God appointed man, that's, you know, the physical flesh, to work the ground, to till the ground, to keep it fertile. So Eve was literally created as the flesh to till what was made out of dirt, which was Adam. 
So dirt, naturally speaking, is tougher and more stubborn, and uh, you need flesh to till the dirt. So basically he's saying even the way that Adam and Eve are created, God created woman to help keep man moving. And that's like part of the point, right? So if you ever see like a household where a husband is starting to shirk responsibilities, is not being a strong leader, the woman being a helper is not her stepping in to be the leader herself. Her being a helper is tilling the ground of her husband, which means get moving. You're the leader. You're supposed to be doing your job. I want to be here to encourage you and support you, but I'm not going to lead. You're going to. That kind of urging, if you will, is something that a wife can do to encourage her husband to be the leader. That's very interesting. I've mm-hmm. never Yes. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. so true. Yep. Yep. It's very true. Yeah. Okay. So we'll look at uh, that, that last verse, Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31. Not quite yet, Ada. Still going. <laughs> Proverbs 31. In uh, verses 11 and 12, says, The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. So she does good and, of course, speaks good for her husband all the days of her life. And her husband trusts her so much that even if everything goes awry, he has no lack of gain because of how much he can trust his wife with the care and management of the household, which, of course, is a very powerful trust that not a lot of households have. Right? But that's, of course, the, the goal here is that there's that trust between a husband and wife and that she's always doing her husband good and not evil all the days that she lives. Last thing we'll talk about, this will go quick, is the role of children to get to the next section. Uh, but before we start on that, are there any, any questions or comments additionally about the topic of the role of the woman? Sure. Yep. Okay. So now you've got uh, the role of children. So there's a couple verses about this. And I think actually children, children as they're talked about in Scripture, are given the most... Uh, unique descriptions. Uh, Psalm 127 is where we'll go first. Psalms 127. Psalm 127. Verses 3 through 5 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. Here's the result. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. And then Proverbs 22, 6, we don't have to turn there, but that's the 
popular verse about parenting that says to train up a child in the way which he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's Proverbs 22.6. So in the Psalms here, in chapter 27, it says that children are like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So that's why I wrote here, the role of children is to be like arrows in the hand of a warrior. Now, arrows, what's interesting about them is that they are cut from branches, shaped, straightened, sharpened, you know, uh, metal is fixed on the end, sharpened, fletched with feathers, notched, just so that they can be sent away from the archer, right? So it's basically the idea is that children were not meant to be seen as yours. And in the right direction. Right. Yeah, and in the right direction. <clears throat> right. They're meant to be shot out. They're meant to be sent out. And the reason why is because, here's the bullet point, parents are only stewards of those who are truly God's children. If children are like arrows, they are to be trained up in God's way and then sent into the world. And that's why Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up in the child in the way which he should go. So the point is the going out. And then when he's old, he won't depart from it. Um, additionally, you have no right to raise your children your way because they're not really your kids. <laughs> uh, they're God's kids. Raise your children God's way and they will grow to be saved and godly people. If you see your children as yours, you're going to want to do things your way and that is not God's way, in which case they're not going to end up being in the way which God intends them to go. They're going to be in a different way. And that is, uh, if you ever tried to shoot a twisted up arrow with no feathers <laughs> it's uh <laughs> yeah plus it goes you it flies but it just goes you'll hit the neighbor's house right like it it will not it won't even hit the target it'll be way way off um, and of course we wouldn't want that to happen so if you sum up what scripture says about what children are to be trained in this is while they're un still under their parents authority and we'll look at these scriptures next bullet point Children are to be trained to be obedient to authority and to God. That comes from Colossians 3.20. They're to be trained to be educated in the word. That comes from Proverbs 4. Trained to be disciplined. That's Ephesians 6. And to be wise. That comes from Proverbs 15.20. So we'll look at those scriptures. Go to Colossians 3.20. Colossians chapter 3. Verse 20 says, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. I always thought it was interesting that the, the first and actually the only command that is given to children in Scripture is their obedience to their parents. You'd think that Scripture would want to tell children more than just obey. <laughs> but the reason why it's so simple is because that's like the thing that children have to learn. And the reason why is not because parents are to be their focus 24-7 and the only thing that matters. They need to learn to be obedient to the first authority in their life, which is their parents, because without that, how can they be expected to learn to be obedient to God? If they can't respect human authority, how can they expect divine, uh, respect divine authority? That's the point. Because you're raising children to be obedient to God. But if you neglect teaching them to be obedient to you as a parent, then there's no way they're going to understand the value of 
being submitted to a God they can't see. And First John talks about this, that if you can't love your brother whom you have seen, how can you love God whom you have not seen? The idea is that you can't be expected to be able to do something for an invisible God when you can't do it for a visible person, right? So that's why obedience is so important for children, because that's how they learn to submit to God's authority, it's as it's taught to them first in their submission to their parents. Then you have educated in the word is the next thing, th that next thing excuse me, that's a... Uh, Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Solomon speaking. He says, Hear, my children, the instruction of a father, and give attention to no understanding. For I give you good doctrine. Do not forsake my law. When I was my father's son, tender and the only one in the sight of my mother, he also taught me and said to me, let your heart retain my words, keep my commands, and live. I like verse 5 too, especially. Get wisdom, get understanding, do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. So this portion where it's speaking of parenting is focused on the law, the doctrine, and the commandments that come from parents to their children. And of course, this would be the doctrine of the word of God. That's what, that's what you're teaching to your children is what God's word says, um, not what you think. Then you have the uh, part about being disciplined. That comes from Ephesians 6 again, uh, where Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke your children, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. This not only means train and admonish your children yourself, but it also means to teach them to be trained and to be admonished as a lifestyle on their own. Because you can, for example, like Proverbs says, that um, rebuke is more effective for a wise man than a hundred blows on a fool. The reason why is because you can you know, physically strike, it's saying, a fool a hundred times, which is like a physical discipline. But if they don't have wisdom, then they're not going to receive that correction and actually change anything about their lives. So that would be a person that no matter how much they are disciplined by someone else, they never discipline themselves. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. So training a child not only means, means disciplining them yourself, it means teaching them to be a disciplined person so that they always don't have to have somebody looking over their shoulder, rebuking them for stuff, uh, quote-unquote, uh, uh, um, striking them with blows, whether that be physically or, or emotionally or whatsoever. They need to learn to be a disciplined person. That's bringing someone up in the training and admonition of the Lord. It means teach them to be disciplined by the Lord, to have a relationship with the Lord where they know how to be corrected by God so that they don't always have to be beaten into submission, right? Because that is not the goal at the end of the day, is that they always have to be rebuked like a fool. Like, they should they should be able to discipline themselves. And the last one is wise, uh, which, of course, is, is valuable. Uh, that's in Proverbs 15, verse 20. And that says, A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish man despises his mother. Uh, again, uh, the first, first statement there, A wise son makes his father glad. That's just scripture that supports the importance of children having wisdom 
And of course, that's echoed in Proverbs 4, which we read earlier that says uh, to get wisdom and get understanding. Later in the chapter, it says, in all of your getting, get understanding. Wisdom is the principal thing, it says. So if you, uh, this is especially important. I mean, it's important in all stages, but this is especially important for parents of new children because training children to be obedient to authority, educated in the word, disciplined and wise starts almost from infancy. It starts very, very early. And starting it early allows you to teach a child the way of obedience while you still can. Because otherwise, it's a lot harder for them to learn all of these things later in life because they develop habits and patterns and mental pathways, if you will. Doesn't, Of course, nobody is hopeless, but it's just simply a lot more difficult. You will, long story short, to make this real practical, your kids will be able to be saved sooner if you discipline them and teach them the way of obedience early. Think about like at what age you decided to follow Jesus. The first age, or the age you were when you decided to repent and believe for the first time. And if you think about what led up to you making that decision, there was all these lessons you had to learn and things that you had to realize and and sin that you had to become convicted of in order to get to a point where you were truly sorry and actually wanted to change your life. Whereas if a children is taught conviction of sin and repentance and consequences of sin really 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 young they can come to a place of a repentant heart very early which ultimately allows them to be saved really really early um Allie and i know a three-year-old who's born again and filled with the spirit and has spiritual gifts and everything she's three right or is she four now four now yeah but it's wasn't it when she was three yeah so and because of discipline Right? She, she learned to be repentant and convicted of her sin at an early age. So kids can learn these things really early, and that's why you have to start early. She doesn't, <laughs> she doesn't have a job. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so to sum up that whole section, see your kids like arrows that are meant to be trained so that they can be sent out. And it says to in that psalm to speak with their enemies in the gate without, without shame, without fear. And the way that you train your children like arrows to be sent out is to teach them obedience to authority, education in the word, discipline, and wisdom. And you will do a good job in parenting if that's what you do. So that's the function of a godly family.